0: me predicted the bite it by whiteout would eclipse definitely maybe. I think we all remember how that turned out though. I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer Jacqueline Rayner. What are you up to and where can we find it?
1: All sorts of bits and pieces. A couple of things recently which are quite fun and I don't absolutely hate. I did a story in the Missy Chronicles which is a Doctor Who anthology called Girl Power which I was quite pleased with. And coming up Shortly, I did an audio play for Bernice Summerfield for the 20th anniversary of her appearing on audio called The Grell Invasion of Earth. But generally, things can be found on my website, jackgrayner.com. And yes, I think that's probably it. But thank you for asking. Well, I don't imagine you'll
0: ever be writing time fiction for your first choice, which is represented by this. James, that's it.
1: Christmas tree. Christmas! Father Christmas! Santa Claus! He lives on top of the store, doesn't he, in the grotto? Yes. Well, why don't we ask him
0: to help? Yes. Yes. yes! Why not? From what I hear, he's a very nice and kind
1: gentleman. He lets little boys and girls go to the top of the store, they sit on his lap, and they whisper in his ear, and they ask for wishes, which he grants. All we have to do is we send one of us to the top of the store, into Santa's grotto and wish for us all to be saved from that furnace. We oh. Oh, oh, yeah. can be back on self for all the little boys and girls to love. That's all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Okay, that
0: was a clip from a programme that is really burnt into my memory, but more as kind of a feeling than anything to do with the actual programme, because I remember it being a highlight of Christmas whenever it was on, but it's not one of those programmes that gets rolled out again these days. So, Jack, what was that?
1: That was Quincy's Quest. It was a Tommy Steele Christmas special. I thought it was on every single Christmas when I was a child, every single one, but it turns out it was only on 1979 and then repeated in 1981 and it's just something that was oh yes it was burned into my brain it's funny that you said about not writing a novelization of it because I actually thought it was based on a book the reasoning being that it was something that I just really remembered so vividly from childhood and probably not that long after, maybe when I was sort of in my teens, I was trying to work out what it was. My parents didn't remember it. But uh, on discussing, we decided what it must have been was Half a Sixpence, the musical starring Tommy Steele. And I knew that was based on a book by HG Wells. Um, and I would read HG Wells, I'd read The Invisible Man and War of the Worlds and everything, but I hadn't read that one. And I have to say, I thought that, you know, adventuring toys in a toy shop, which is what it was about was possibly a slightly odd story for H. G. wells nevertheless i tracked the book down read it and and realized that when the people had dramatized this for television they put in all this stuff about a toy who wanted to save his fellow reject toys in the basement of the toy store from going into the furnace on christmas day and so set off on a journey to the top of the store to get a wish from father christmas to save them all you know it, it seemed quite an odd thing to have been put in this spot for some reason they'd done that and and it wasn't until the internet came along many many years later that uh, I discovered that it was something completely different this Christmas television special Quincy's quest and from having found it on the internet i really think that maybe Half of the queries on the internet on the sort of, do you remember what was this, are actually about Quincy's Quest. It's obviously something that children of my sort of age really remembered, but just didn't know what it was. It's one of those real burned in your brain sort of things. Now it is up on YouTube. Whoa. So finally, a couple of years ago, actually watched it again, watched it with my own children who would have been similar-ish ages to when I watched it the first time. And, you know, it's not fantastic. There are some, ooh, fairly dodgy costumes and effects um the songs maybe not that brilliant, but it still did actually hold up. My children really enjoyed it and bits Which I really remembered. There's a, this is a spoiler by the way, but there's a bit when a good character turns into an evil character and it's done with a mirror and wow, I really, really remembered that. And they sort of went, oh! About that too. Still, despite the fact that they're used to fast paced CGI and goodness knows what these days. It's fun. It's still fun. And I'm really, really pleased that I found it. So, so I don't think it's a forgotten thing. It's not a thing that nobody else listening will have seen. But I bet it's the sort of thing that a lot of people listening will have remembered and had to go, oh, that's what it was, at some point. It's it's one of those shows.
0: Well I'm fairly sure that a lot of those queries will have been answered by people saying, OMG, I remember that. It was called Moondial, but it seems to be the default response (laughs) for that kind of query. But that's by the by. What I remember most about it was it seemed to last for the entire evening and have about a million ad breaks. Some of which I remember the sort of scary music as it went on a cliffhanger into the ad break went into sort of like a nightmare version of the jingle. You know, like, sort of minor key, like, <laughs> here they are now, brackets to kill you, Morecambe and Wise. But watching it again, because a couple of years ago, I went a bit mad and thought I would do this series of articles about old children's ITV Christmas shows, to go out on the same date and at the same time that they were originally broadcast. And as you can imagine, it was a bit too ambitious. And the, the Chorton and the Wheelies and ghost and Motley Hall articles didn't actually appear in the end. They will be appearing soon, but that's another story. But I watched it again for that. And the first thing was that struck me was it's only, I think it's less than 90 minutes. And yet it seemed to me yeah, as a child yeah. to be almost the whole, well, not quite the whole day, but... Quincy's quest seemed to take up an enormous part of Waking Hours when it was on. And the other thing was Absolutely. that there isn't much of, that much of a plot to it. It's basically he starts in the basement yeah. and goes up to meet Father Christmas. And in between, it's just lots of disconnected interludes, really, where he sings and dances with big hippos and things.
1: It is. I, I found it quite similar to to a pantomime, to, to a stage show. Not... Only in that it's just, oh, a little bit of talk and then we have our song and dance number. But actually quite a lot of the, the things itself sort of it does double takes and things. You know, it's very stagey. The plot may not make 100% sense. You've got, I'm still not quite sure, I think it all happens on Christmas Day. So, you know, this is quite a, a strange toy shop that not only opens the store on Christmas Day, but goes to all the bother of bringing staff in to burn toys on <laughs> Christmas Day. And, yes, there's all these things with the witch and, yeah, not quite sure why. I think she's just, she is evil because she's evil. It's one of those things. But, yeah, it is just, uh, getting from A to B with incident in the middle rather than a plot. <laughs>
0: you are right. It is set on Christmas Day and the store does open on Christmas Day because I had a memory from it that I never realised was from it, which is right at the end, again, spoiler alert, a horde of children headed by a very young Patsy Kensit charge into the department store, demanding the broken toys for some reason I can't really remember. And there's a bit (laughs) in it where the evil store manager, who wants the toys burnt with immediate effect, bends down to say, oh, hello, little boy, how are you? And the boy boots him on the shin. And for years I remembered that bit, I remembered laughing at it, but I couldn't remember what program it was from. And then when I watched Quincy's Quest again I thought, oh that's it, that's where it was from. How weird, I remembered this program so clearly and this bit so clearly. And there can't be many things that fit together like those two, but it just didn't sort of tessellate in my mind. It's very odd.
1: Well, the whole thing is toys. Um, You wouldn't really associate the bit with a, you know, a a human businessman type and a small boy with it because it really is just that tiny, tiny bit at the end. But yeah, I remember that. Yes, the the children running (laughs) riot. Isn't it implied that it's the real Father Christmas? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I definitely noticed because when you've got small children, you have to really be on the ball policing that stuff. So you're ready with the questions when they go is that the real father christmas is that me father christmas is the real and all this sort of thing and at the end i absolutely remember it said Father Christmas as himself in the
0: credits. <laughs> well, you see, that was quite a nice tactic for them to take. But at the same time, it reminds me of what very first started to be questioning the existence of Father Christmas was, as a youngster, I was obsessed with Pipkins, the ITB lunchtime show, and with reading credits, because yeah. I always used to want to know, you know, what the director did and so on. There was an episode of Pipkins, which I think must have been on Christmas Day in the very late 70s, where during the end credits, it said, Hartley, Father Christmas, Nigel Plaskett. And I thought, oh, hang on, they implied that was Father Christmas and not the man doing Hartley's voice. And they didn't say it's one of his helpers helping him out, so what's going on there? No So I'm I'm blaming Hartley Hare for it, really.
1: Hartley Hare is to blame for a lot of childhood trauma, yes.
0: Okay, well as I said, there did seem to be millions of outbreaks during Quincy's quest, and I do wonder if during one of them there was a plug for this. The hot monster burn in the ground. He's so hot, he drank a river down. Big thirst. Nothing could quench his big bad thirst. Like a lake, well man, that only made it worse. Big bad thirst. One day, he knocked back a swimming pool. Then he got a taste of something real cool. Quash. Now if you follow my jive and get hip to my first, only quash can quench the Big Bad thirst. Big new quash. Right, well that's just a generic Quash advert. It's only there because it particularly annoyed me when it was in wide circulation. But obviously everyone remembers Quash, so Jack, why have we got this here? It's
1: for one particular variety. Which was Quash Tropical. You couldn't have missed it on the supermarket shelves at the time. It was bright green, and I mean, bright green this incredible nuclear translucent brilliant space green it was just amazing and it tasted amazing as well it was just very exotic for me because at at home i'm not saying i was badly treated at home but home was lemon squash and occasionally possibly even orange and pineapple squash but I discovered this incredible substance over my cousin's house, this glowing green liquid. It just tasted amazing. It was looking amazing. And that was just such a a combination to sear it into your mind. I was a really fussy eater. I'm still a fussy eater. And I had this slightly strange coping strategy if i had to eat or drink something i didn't like which was to imagine it was space food or space (laughs) drink and you know it's one of those things where perhaps you you have to drink it uh, so the aliens don't take offense and start slaughtering you or it's the only nutrition and you have to keep your strength up for the for the upcoming space battle and quash tropical was that drink it was like something out of a story there was me at home or not no not at home or if you you know meet me out somewhere and somebody gives you some weak warm blackcurrant nasty tasting squash and I'm sipping it through my plastic straw thinking mm, well this is lovely this lovely bright green quash tropical space juice <laughs> it was actually not a drink that I had a huge amount of as a childhood it's not like a oh I have this every day um, and that's why it's nostalgic and it was something I hardly ever tasted but actually drank a huge amount in my imagination it's One of those things that again, I looked on the internet before this and there's not even a picture of it. And I just wanted to confirm quite how bright green it was well i had to look as well i mean if matters were confused
0: by the fact there is a new quash tropical now which seems to be just you know orange and mango and very very subdued color but the only quantifiable mention <laughs> i found a bit as you remember it was actually by rich littler who does the Scarfuk website so oh, yeah. i think you're <laughs> in the right ballpark there but i get the impression just from your description of it that it was more kind of an adult drink, really, it's a sophisticated Ooh. quash for sophisticated to have at their dinner parties, maybe.
1: Wow, quash dinner parties! <laughs> yeah, that sounds really cool, and and actually, that you know, that makes it sound so much more exotic. Obviously, I was drinking, you know, forbidden adult space drink. Whoa, gosh. <laughs> Oh, I wish they'd bring that back, but I think it's probably got way too many E numbers in it. Well, from what you've said, from the colouring and the
0: flavour, I would imagine if there are still any bottles around, there will be so many other that it'd be well-preserved enough to still drink now. That, that stuff is never going to go out of date. <laughs> but it is interesting that things like chocolate bars get revived, crisps and so on, never seems yes. to be soft drinks, and I don't know why that is, really.
1: No, no, it really isn't, is it? And And drinks... Yeah, they're just as evocative as as chocolate bars of uh, bygone days. Yeah, I mean, things like, from a bit later, Quattro. And I think that's actually tasted quite similar to quash tropical it's the same sort of you know multi-fruit sort of flavor well yeah Quattro's is the one that people always seem to come back to mentioning they my do. main memory of it is that i think
0: what a lot of people remember more than drink itself there was an advert where a kind of somebody who was almost auditioning for zig zig sputnik went up to a vending machine with a Quattro credit card on this terrible sort of sub-bluey some new romantic track played and he stuck it in and the can came out and he grabbed it very enthusiastically and it went Quattro in the sort of vocoder oh, voice that. but on news agent had a promotional stack of those credit cards and I remember thinking, oh. oh, great, I've got one of these. Now I've got to find one of those machines and get free drink. <laughs> Obviously, it didn't occur <laughs> to me that they weren't real. But also, why did everyone find it so futuristic? It was just a vending machine with a style, person in style that was already rapidly going out of fashion. So it wasn't that <laughs> futuristic, really.
1: Oh, gosh, it's amazing the things that really catch your attention. But, yeah, I mean, the whole credit card thing, though, that's pretty futuristic.
0: <laughs> well, moving on to your next choice now, which... I'm not going to say this is the best thing I've ever thought of, but I'm sure when you've got your can of out of the vending machine, there's a satisfying clonk that sounded a bit like this. <laughs> OK, well, that is a, <laughs> a. clonk from BBC Records and Tapes offbeat sound effects, as previously chosen by Mark Griffiths on this show. But we're not actually talking about the sound effect as such, because I couldn't think what else to put here. Jack,
1: what were clunks? It's a very good question <laughs> that I may still be asking myself. Clonks was a toy and it was a toy that I loved, absolutely loved, played with endlessly. But it's nowhere I've looked on the internet. I've put in every combination, every sort of spelling. No. Clonks is nowhere. What it was, there was plasticine. A variety of plasticine, more sort of putty-like, that you rolled into a cylinder, you had a little device for doing that. Then you had a load of accessories, you had helmets, weapons, various bits of armour that were made in bronze or silver coloured plastic. So you'll get your little plasticine type cylinder, put a helmet on it, maybe some shoes on it. Uh, a bit of armour, give it a spear or a sword, and you would do that until you had two opposing clonk armies. Then you would uh, attack each other. You had catapults for you to fire little balls of plasticine at the opposing armies. And it was called clonk, spelled as far as I know, with a K at the beginning. I have this idea, which unfortunately my parents were unable to confirm, although they did confirm that I had not imagined Clonks, they both remembered it and remembered me playing with it all the time, that it was brought back from somewhere in Europe, maybe Germany, by a family friend. The trouble is I didn't have the box for it, or at least I didn't have for very long. I don't really remember having the box for it. So um, I couldn't tell you if it was in another language. <laughs> Everything was decamped into a big shoebox, which I wrote the word clonks, spelled with a K, on in big felt tip letters. So that is all I know about it. That name which I wrote on it, and the hope and belief that that was the correct name for it, I've never come across even the vaguest mention of it anywhere. But if it did come from abroad, even though I've tried Google searches taking that into account, that's probably why, because, you know, things from abroad were just so exotic back then. You know, you didn't have the Internet or or anything where you could explore these other places and see their strange plasticine based toys to compare things well, with that's absolutely true it was always quite a big
0: deal when someone in school had been abroad on holidays and came back with an unusual exotic comic book or some toys that you didn't recognize you know there was always a big crowd in the playground around somebody showing off their you know toys something to do with baseball sometimes it's things like that but the one that i really remember is my dad went to germany with work when we were quite young and came back with a huge box of what I can only describe as knockoff, unlicensed smarties with lots of German <laughs> writing all around the box so we didn't understand what it meant I'd love to know what it said now but what I remember about them was they were absolutely inedible they were rock hard they were impossible <laughs> to bite into and as children we used to say I don't think we get away with saying this now we used to say to each other we have phase of breaking your teeth Absolute dead silence across the entire listenership now.
1: Oh, gosh, I mean, yeah. British people, the Americans, always talk about how bad our teeth are, don't they? <laughs> so maybe they should meet a few Germans of our age. So with Clunks, was there actually any gameplay
0: to it? a sort of battle strategy, or did you literally just pit them against each other?
1: Unless there were instructions which I discarded with the box. Because they
0: were in foreign. But...
1: No... <laughs> well, yes. There was, as far as I know, no game, no strategy. It was just... I am in control of two armies and and I will destroy them. I mean, I suppose possibly if you had two players, you could play against each other just in a general battle sense. But I suppose that sort of basically put me as... You know, a a god overall deciding which side would live and which side would die.
0: Well, that reminds me of, I'm now wondering if you had these as well. I was never that into, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and gaming and so on, but I have a distinct memory of aged about 14 walking past Games Workshop in Central Station in Liverpool, seeing in the window this massive box that said Daleks and Cybermen with about a million Uh... plastic Daleks and Cybermen in it. I thought, brilliant, that's what I've been waiting for all my life. Went in and bought it all the way home was like, this is going to be great. And then I remember sitting there thinking, looking at them, thinking what am I actually going to do with these? I don't know how to Play anything with them, and then had to pit them against each other. The box was no help because it showed what appeared to be a Cyberman skirt of a mouse doing that pose, and the Dalek with a controversial water pistol attachment. And to this day, sometimes I will find one of them at the bottom of a box. and think I never did figure out what to do with you.
1: Well, I actually I did have those <laughs> as well. But the thing is, I was a role player, and we did have the Doctor Who role playing game. But by the time all that was was out. Uh, and I was a role player, you were no longer at the age at which you just sort of did battles by yourself where you would hold a toy in each hand going pow, pow, poo, poo, <laughs> and, and, you know, attack each other. So, no, I don't think I ever actually played with those Plastic Daleks either. Well, I don't know which
0: clonk army you rooted for generally, but whichever side you were supporting, I hope they didn't have this chap amongst their ranks.
1: And now it's time for Comedy Shop's Adventure Serial. El Bandido. Where the wicked Pat Mooney. That's me, folks. Where the wicked Pat Mooney tries to kill off
0: our hero, El Bandido, who is defended and protected by the wonderful
1: Bernie Glitter. That's me, folks. This week's episode, where there's much. Freedom was his name, and it was his game. Justice was his name, and his name was El Bandido. Right, person, I'm ready to hear
0: this. El Bandido, oh, no! El Bandido, El Bandido, El, Bandido, El, Bandido, El, Bandido, El, Bandido, El Bandido.
1: You can wait as long as you like this week, Clifton, because this week it's Burton.
0: Okay, apologies for the sound quality there, but that's a clip from Bernie Clifton's Comedy Shop, the Radio 2 comedy show that ran for years and years and years, and that character is Jack.
1: (laughs) Well, that is El Bandido, and oh my God, you have discovered the thing that I have been looking for for years. Over the years, every now and again, I do a bit of a search to see if anything has surfaced. And you've just found it. You have found my El Bandido Bernie Clifton Grail. I'm really excited. This has just made my day. The only trouble is that I was about to tell you of how I remembered El Bandido. And now it might turn out that I've remembered I remembered it completely wrong. How I remember it is, and this is, oh, this must be a very early 80s. I think I was probably sort of 11-ish, maybe. And I was mad on radio comedy. Uh, It meant a lot more to me than the music, really. You know, I would tape things. I would have all the comedy LPs and, yeah. And one of the things that I would never miss was Bernie Clifton's Comedy Shop, solely for... This character, El Bandido, and it's quite hard for me to not sing it as soon as (laughs) as I say those words. It's like a Pavlovian response, but I'm not going to. Did I say Pavlovian? Anyway, El Bandido. As I remember it, and as I may now be proved wrong, it was a sketch in which there was a baddie and a goodie, El Bandido being the goodie, and the baddie would put El Bandido into some completely terminal situation, something from which there was no escape, certain death. And then El Bandido, who was played by Bernie Clifton himself, would reply in song, with the way in which El Bandido got out of the situation some very clever and humorous Way. I think at the time I possibly thought it was improvised (laughs) and that El Bandido was genuinely having to come up with a way of escaping from this situation in song, (laughs) in real time. I suspect that was not the case. But it just really struck me. I mean, listen to loads of sketch comedy and it was just. Very funny and just quite a unique sketch format with the back and forth and the singing. It was it was just really clever. And um, I'm really, really hoping, now I know I can come and listen to one again, that it is as funny as I remember it. I really hope so. (gasps) Never meet your heroes. (laughs) I mean, it is interesting that there
0: are all these repeat stations that do dig these things out. But there are some things that are just sitting in the archives that I remember that have never turned out. I mean, the two big things for me, there's Tracy Oldman was a DJ on Radio 1 very briefly. None of that has ever resurfaced. But the main one was, I remember hearing, in about 1985, 86, in the sort of half past six slot on Radio 4, whatever time it was at that point, one of those shows, you know, where they have a load of different stand-ups in a row. But somebody came on who I always thought, in the back of my head, was Norman Lover. But I once met him and asked him, and he swears blind it wasn't him. Somebody did a routine <laughs> about going around the supermarket, which is already quite edgy. But they said, and so I walked past the fish, they're cold on feeling bastards, aren't they? And I remember being absolutely shocked thinking, somebody said bastard on Radio 4, that, did that just happen? And what? it genuinely did happen because it, it was enough of a standout thing to startle me but I've never been able to identify what programme it was or who it was. Somebody out there is thinking to themselves ah I swore on Radio 4 and no one noticed. I'm sorry a young (laughs) boy did
1: notice. Oh Oh, gosh I hope you check that one down. Actually that does remind me that an episode of Bernie Clifton's Comedy Shop did resurface. You know on 4 Extra they do those Saturday morning programmes where they've just lots of different things on a theme and I actually turned up in that I think back when it was BBC 7 and that was really really exciting and i tuned in and i was going oh please don't want to do it and it wasn't there so i wonder if maybe it was just on for one series or two two series and it wasn't on every single episode of it and oh that was such a disappointment it really was but today (laughs) you have made up for that long ago disappointment so what other
0: shows have never resurfaced that you remember
1: yeah nearly everything that i remember has resurfaced actually but uh star trek star trek 2 which was a, a sketch show. Um, I don't think that really has. There was a, some fantastic sketches in that. It was really strange getting into radio comedy. And, and Fred Harris is, is obviously in, in several different yeah. things, but quite anarchic at times. And it was, hang on. <laughs> no, no, he should be with Hannibal. Yeah. This is all wrong. So that's not one of the strangest things when you grow up And find children's television Mm -hmm. presenters doing non-television children things. And yeah, have you
0: ever heard any of Tony Arthur's albums that she did before play school?
1: I haven't heard any of her albums but my family are huge on folk music parents actually met at a folk club and she did a single you know the wendy Richards come outside Oh yes he did a version of that with a west country group called the yetis Okay. and um yes we we had that on record
0: okay well it's not really in the same vein as hearken to the witch's rune which is one, one of her albums <laughs> which is it, every bit as terrifying okay. as people are probably imagining but the main thing i've remember about Star Trek was it had these amazing Radio Times billings saying things like do not listen to this program it is awful.
1: Oh that sounds brilliant but I, I, ne- I never actually saw them because we only got the Radio and TV Times at Christmas which is why Quincy's Quest really stood out to me because it was on the cover of of, uh, Christmas TV Times and and everything there seemed, you know, wonderfully exciting because it was, yeah, exploring the the Christmas issues of the magazine. Yeah, because radio comedy, it sort of gets forgotten that they really did pull out all the stops with nearly every show got a Christmas special. Yeah, they did. They were mostly
0: good, but some sometimes felt a bit lazy. Like, I remember the radioactive Christmas special wasn't quite as good.
1: Oh, no. No, you're absolutely, yeah, Christmas time turkey that's what it was called and it was sort of a little bit appropriate which is awful because i absolutely adore radioactive that wasn't really quite there the ones that really
0: stand out for me not really looks unfamiliar fair because i'm sure most of the people listening will remember all of these but when radio One had that spell of having comedians as djs in the early 90s there were quite a few of them did christmas shows and christmas week i remember the lee and herring one was absolutely brilliant because they they were in character affecting you know rich, loving Christmas and Stu hating it, and they played No Christmas for John Keyes by the fall, which (laughs) I I, don't think it was quite seasonal fair. But the other one was Chris Morris had two hours on Boxing Day in 1994, where he, I think, deliberately replayed a lot of the most controversial bits he'd done in the previous year, including when they found Johnny Walker dead on the studio floor and reanimated him with bellows. And that was... You know, 1pm on Boxing Day.
1: Oh my gosh, you weren't listening to it over lunch with your parents, were
0: you? Uh, My parents were definitely not listening to Chris Morris on Radio 1, I can assure you of that. (laughs) Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now. And I would imagine that on a Boxing Day much earlier than when you might have heard Chris Morris making jokes about the Nirvana board game, you might have been playing with one of these.
1: In the summer, Pippa's back. This time with a new commercial to introduce new friends in a brand new setting that's sure to be a must with Pippa owners. Set up in two or three seconds, these adjacent
0: room sets are fully detailed to form a perfect backing to the figures and furniture. They're rooms where Pippa can really entertain her friends in style. Also to be revealed in the summer, Pippa's Pony. It's going to be a
1: good year with pocket-sized Pippa.
0: Okay. Well, that may be just a generic doll advert because at the time of recording, I couldn't find much evidence of these out there. But Jack,
1: Pippa dolls, what were they? Pippa dolls? I wasn't really a doll person, but for some reason I loved these. They were a fashion doll in the Barbie or Cindy vein, but smaller, quite a bit smaller. And not exactly obscure because I remember buying them in places like Woolworths and, and Boots, but they were always really Barbie and Cindy's, you know, forgotten cousin that they hid in the back room when visitors came over (laughs) you didn't get a lot of their stuff in the shops and my friends at the time I don't think you know they did weren't unaware of the existence of Pippa dolls but they had Barbies and they had Cindy's and it was just me with these particular ones I just remember going around the shops and you got so excited if you actually saw something to do with Pippa because it was just that bit more obscure I hardly had any accessories you know actual real Pippa branded accessories because you hardly ever game across them i had pippa's horse which i found in a shop and that was very exciting and i also had pippa's bathroom which was bright pink and consisted of sink bath and toilet
0: yeah the obvious combination um, there.
1: of <laughs> course so most of the things i did with my pippa dolls were either you know horse or bathroom related what actually what i really because I was obviously a fairly pretentious child and was I used to write plays for my pippa dolls we quite often did pantomimes Cinderella was quite a good one because you'd get your your sort of early scruffy pippa doll at the beginning and then at the end she'd transform into one of the really glam ones there was a princess one and a film star one that had ankle length hair which was just you know high glamour absolutely so that was that was quite cool but you know it was a cinderella where she wasn't sent to scrub the hearth she had to scrub out the toilet um and then possibly went to the ball in a horse-drawn bath (laughs) quite often you know now i i do actually write for a living you write a story and people will say okay but you've only got x number of characters and you can only have this number of different scene settings. And by the way, we want you to include in it, you know, this monster or this happening or something to time with something else. So I think actually it was a really good experience for me that I had to put together plays featuring a small variety of Pippa characters. She didn't. There were sort of some other Pippas. There was like Pippa's friend Tammy and Pippa's boyfriend Pete who just had oh really quite ugly plastic hair and yeah I had to fit these around the whole horse and bathroom scenarios so yeah I should I should be really grateful perhaps that there weren't that many accessories in the shops because it's given me essential training for my life today I'm just intrigued by how many adventures could you have with the horse and the bathroom? Well, you know, it's just a bit of imagination. You know, your runaway horse that smashes into a bathroom factory. You know, <laughs> these things can happen. Or you happen to be in the bath when some you know horse monster from the planet Horso materializes and you know starts attacking and you have to dress yourself up in some lovely 70s hippie smock gear which you've possibly earned actually with petal points and i'll get tell you about petal points in a second and you know and you have some amazing adventure and obviously uh you managed to fight the horse off before Pete comes round to use your toilet (laughs) yeah petal points that was a that was a Pippa thing on the back of the packaging you had a little outline flower with lots of petals on and you would earn petals there would be a little petal say one on an outfit that you cut out and you would try and fill up a whole flower and when you did you could send it off to get a free outfit and i'm not entirely sure i actually even got that far because there were so few things out there but you know i I did dream of of what these wonderful free outfits might be you know just getting something in the post it would you know Oh, so exciting. I don't think it would
0: have been the top of the range ones. It would have been just like a, a white sheet and it said, Here is her ghost outfit.
1: Yeah, but that, oh, that would have been brilliant, though, <laughs> because they could have had a ghost in my play as well. I've got a ghost and a horse. i sure you weren't planning to be in that renter ghost. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, I've, I've read your. It's your thing. You did that big thing on the renter Santa, didn't you? Yes. Oh, that would was... <laughs> be fantastic was that part of your your christmas blog that series was the
0: previous year when i did children's bbc and for some reason i thought i'd do it again the next year and the words failed me they really do but it's interesting <laughs> that there were all these second division lines of dolls that nobody remembers now i mean uh, mm-hmm. samira arm had mentioned havoc and what was the havoc's counterpart called who wasn't a secret agent. Daisy, that's right. But the one that I really remember, it's really, really weird because I know a lot of Doctor Who fans who were (laughs) around my age, I know very few who had any of the... Well, there were Doctor Who dolls, let's not be coy about it, but the 70s range. The only ones that I know are, I had Tom Baker and I also had, for some reason, there were some Lone Ranger dolls in the late 70s. I think there was a Filmation cartoon of it, but I had one of his mates who had black hair side parting and a moustache. That became the Brigadier (laughs) in an oversized (laughs) Action Man costume. Well, none of my friends also had Tom Baker and he put it in the freezer to be a nice Planet Adventure and forgot... And then a couple of weeks later, oh, his mum said, um, "Here's your Doctor Who, like sort of encased in ice."
1: Oh, that's <laughs> and we we joke awful.
0: about that. No, we joke about that as the best story that was never made.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Look, if only I'd lived near, I could have brought around my Pippa dolls, and um, you know they could have been, uh, you know, Sarah Jane or Leela. Yeah. Oh, that would have been good was there wasn't
0: Leela who looked absolutely feral.
1: Oh, there were Yeah, I, I didn't know it at the time, but yes, I have seen pictures, and the way the hair sticks out—yeah, yeah, that's actually that's sort of quite how the Pippers went after a few years, <laughs> sticking out like that. But oh no, you actually you've inspired me because I mean I didn't have any of those dolls at the time, mm. but my husband and my children have quite a lot of the action figures now, and they're actually not too far out of scale with Pippers because. <laughs> Doing all these, these reminiscences in preparation for this, my dad actually managed to find some of my Pippas in the loft. Oh. So I could I can read out some Doctor Who stories and the Pippas are only a bit taller than than the Doctor. Oh wow. So, you know, he just will have to go around saying, you know, and this is my freakishly tall assistant. Yeah, I think we'll <laughs> stick with Pippa. Yeah, the adventures of Doctor and Pippa and their horse and toilet. <laughs> Oh, this is going
0: to be great! Uh, Picture the big finish now.
1: (laughs) Oh, I will. I will.
0: Okay, well, moving on to your last choice now. Well, I say choice; it's actually choices, and in a way, there's two things represented by this clip, and it's nothing to do with either of them. If you go down in the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. If you go down in the woods today, you'd better go in disguise.
1: For every bear that ever there was will
0: gather there for certain because today's the day the teddy bears have their picnic. Okay, well that was a bit of the teddy bears picnic. And Jack, do you want to tell
1: me why we use that? Yes, there are a number of reasons. Well, by number, I mean two. two is a number. The first is something called honey bear spread. Now, this could or could not be the thing that I've been trying to remember. I've got various silly, icky health conditions, which mean I have quite a limited diet, which when you're as fussy as I am, as discussed earlier, is generally awkward but I've been having a major pain episode recently uh, when I've had to cut that right down and I've only been able to eat actually a few foods and one of them is honey and honey is not something I'm really that keen on it's so sweet and I was saying to my mum oh I remember when I was a child we used to get this honey that was in a flat round plastic tub with all these teddy bears pictured on the tub and I really liked that and she went oh yes yes I remember I remember used to get get that from asda's yes used to have that and so obviously not assuming or hoping that it would still be around i decided to do a bit of a google and what i think from the clues that google has spread before me i think it may have been this thing called honey bear spread so it wasn't actually a honey It was a spread that was honey flavoured, which is just such a 70s thing. You know, rather than having your natural product, you would have a, you know, a a strange flavored thing. Like we used to have powdered orange juice, for goodness sake. You know, it's just you don't have the thing itself. But yeah, so I think it might be this honey bear spread. So far, so what? But here's, ah, this is just where I went. Oh my God, because it turns out that honey bear spread was made or manufactured or, you know, had a connection with a firm called Joseph Farrow and Co-Limited, who are mainly known for things like ketchup and peas, but have done, you know, various condiments and conserves and so forth. And what your listeners <laughs> will not know is that I have a secret identity as a wife and mother, and that identity is Mrs. Farrow. And my husband, we've been, we were trying to work this out actually last night, with reference to various bits and pieces of family trees that people have put together over the years, and we think, we're not certain, but we think that the Joseph Pharaoh of Joseph Farrow and Co. was the elder brother of my husband's great 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 grandfather wow so i have actually found that this you know amazing childhood nostalgia spread i have actually married into the honey bear spread dynasty (laughs) which is just one of those oh my god connections so that you know not particularly exciting on the spread front but i've just been running around going Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Honey Bear Spread. Wow. (laughs) I'm related to it. Well, I wasn't
0: expecting this to turn into an edition of Who Do You Think You Are? But that's fantastic. That's exactly what it looks unfamiliar for. But the main reason we're talking about Honey Bear Spread was that your original last choice, Fox, Steve and me. So, Jack, go on.
1: (laughs) Right. Yes, this is the big one. This is something that has haunted me for, oh, well over 30 years I think and I don't know what it is and I've mentioned it I've mentioned it on the internet I think I may have mentioned it when I had a column in Doctor Who magazine they might have cut it but I've mentioned it all over the place sure that at some point somebody is going to say yes of course I remember that because it's something that is so memorable I don't know why no one else remembers it What it was, ITV, Anglia region uh, particularly, it was what I watched on, so whether it was, you know, on everything, I don't know. ITV, children's tea time type drama, weekday, and it was in a, you know, the Bugsy Malone type way, it was the children played all the characters, they played the adults and everything. They may possibly have also played the animals, but I'm, I'm not quite sure if they were meant to be animals or not. There were a load of children locked in stables, While children as adults, as farmers in cloth caps were walking around outside the stables. And there is really stuck in my mind. There's a bit where these cloth capped farmer children were taking huge bites out of these great, big, thick, juicy burgers. The implication being that these burgers were made out of the children that they kept in Uh. the stables. (laughs) I know, I know. And I also... And sorry, that's the Teddy Bear's Picnic connection, because while this was happening, Teddy Bear's Picnic was playing on the soundtrack. So it was burger eating to Teddy Bear's Picnic. And and to this day, I cannot listen to Teddy Bear's Picnic without getting completely creeped out because I just associate it with cannibalism now. I think... And this is a bit i'm not so sure of i think there might have been an Arthurian connection possibly a, a you know a sword coming out of the water not quite so sure about that because i was quite into Arthurian stuff at the time and there would have been at a similar time uh, a documentary about um, discovering the skeletons of Arthur and Guinevere in med- medieval times the skeletons with all the hair on and everything and that freaked me out so that was quite in my brain so not 100% convinced that the Arthurian connection is there. I think it was, not quite sure. But everything else in it is definite. But here is the thing, I don't know how it ended. And I th- I think that's why it stuck with me, because I was just desperate to know, you know, were they really eating burgers of these children? And what happened in the end? Because I was watching it over my grandpa's house, and he came into the room and, you know, there are some things that are for children, made for children, marketed at children, but, you know, adults aren't going to like, I mean, I used to sort of hide the contents of my Misty comic because <laughs> even though it was for children and quite often had been bought to me, bought for me, sorry, by parents or grandparents, <laughs> I knew they actually read the contents, which is, you know, r- real hellfire nation stuff. Um, That they won't want me reading it anymore. And I knew when my grandpa walked in that this is not the sort of thing that they he would want me watching. And indeed, he said, um, I remember it very clearly. Oh, dear. You don't want to be watching this rubbish, do you? And switched it off. So I don't know. How it ended. I've, oh, I've looked and looked for it. I, I did wonder if it was a drama rama because it would probably have been about a, possibly a similar time to a very early drama rama. But, you know, nothing rings any bells, none of the titles. I would. If I had the opportunity to go to a place where they kept every, every issue of TV Times, I would read through the whole of the 80s just to see if I could find a clue, however long that took. I really really want to know this one I really want to know how it ended I want that so badly and then finally I can put this to rest in my brain well let's hope that somebody out there listening not
0: only knows what it is but can actually tell you what happened at the end please please Jack it's been a pleasure thank you thank you very much Fun at One by Tim Worthington: The story of comedy at BBC Radio One from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details: timworthington.blogspot.co.uk